Welcome to Great Minds and our guest today for our 300th episode, Liz. Little did you know that you were going to be episode number 300. I gave a lot of thought to this, Liz. Gosh, I feel honored. Our guest today is Liz Ulmer. Liz is with the Sony family. She is the director of stage rights for Sony Music Publishing. And we met very recently. So we're not old friends, we're new friends. We met very recently at a special event at Sony in New York, celebrating the release of the cast album of Mandela the Musical, which ran last year at the Young Vic in London. And we're now thrilled to be working with the creators, producers, uh, a combination of Greg and Sean Borowski and Nandi Mandela and Lavoyo Madassa to bring the show to Broadway. It's a great joy uh, in the life of my wife, Isla, and I to be part of Mandela the Musical. And it was great meeting you, Liz, and I couldn't think of a better conversation to have uh, than with you about theater, something I love. We'll talk about Mandela, of course. Uh, But I thought this would just be super fun and really in many ways, is the best of what we try to do on Great Minds, which is to hear from people and have conversations that you might not hear anywhere else. So a real heartfelt welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, you know, I'm thrilled to to be here and God knows I could talk about theater all day. <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna have some fun, Liz. So uh you went to a school that people don't talk about enough. It's one of the great, great colleges uh in communications in the arts and performing arts so i'd love to talk about as winter wanes here i'd love to talk about uh ithaca college which is uh, really a wonderful place it was my top choice when i was applying to colleges i was um at the time i was looking to get i was i actually auditioned for the music program not musical theater which is where i eventually wound up um but uh yeah so i was uh i auditioned for the music program as a singer um and my they had a double degree program there where you can get you go four and a half years and you get a degree in uh performance of whatever your instrument is and also music education and i spent a year in that program. And then I remembered that I don't like opera that much and I don't really want to teach. So <laughs> I'm sort of, I, I mean, ultimately I think my goal was always musical theater and I had convinced myself, ah, no, that's not the smart thing to do. Not, you know, you don't need a degree in it. You can just do it when you graduate. But, but I did wind up transferring to the, uh, the theater department and it was great. It was, um, you know, I, I still have some close friends that I keep in touch with there. It's a great community. It's, it, um, you know, it was somewhat intense, that program at times, but it, it's, you know, it, it's such a beautiful place. You know, I am, I am not uh, talented in any way in particular. Uh, and so I've never had to go through that transition where I was trying something that was as bold as being on stage and saying, you know what, maybe I'd be better off in another part of that world. Talk about the experience of starting off as a performer and then having a moment where you say, you know what, I love it, but I'm really better at that than this. You know, during my first eight, nine years in the city, I was pursuing performing and, uh, you know, I had some good auditions. I got my equity card, Actors Equity, uh, the union, um, and I, 
I just, I started to get fatigued and I, I was working on a lot of little projects here and there, readings, workshops, and I was so fascinated by what was happening sort of on the other side of the table, as they say. Um, and I became first involved in what's called dramaturgy, which is basically sort of acting as a literary consultant to, uh, to playwrights and directors in terms of you know, plot devices and refining characters and, you know, sometimes uh, providing insight into if it's a historical play, you know, doing research on, you know, what costumes would have liked, looked like, that kind of thing. And I, I enjoyed that, but um, I actually wound up stumbling into, uh, into theater management completely by accident because at age 30, I had gotten a internship part-time internship with uh, the New York Musical Theater Festival, which unfortunately no longer exists, but uh, it was a large festival where they would put up, you know, 40, 50 shows over the course of one, uh, of course of a few weeks. And I joined them as a literary intern. And during my time there, I, uh, I signed on to help with one of the shows as an assistant producer, because I thought that actually looked interesting. And what wound up happening was the lead producer had to step back and I had to step up. I had no idea what I was going to do. I just, you know, had to, from day to day, how are we getting from point A to point B? Um, it was, you know, it was really intense, but I found out, oh, wait, I'm actually pretty good at this. And the show went very well. It was very well received. We wound up having more productions of it overseas. And I, I just kind of went from there. I really loved, um, you know, I love how in producing and management, you're really seeing the entire picture. You know, you're involved in every aspect from, you know, the, the development of the, the script and the music itself to, uh, you know, the production logistics to the, the, um, fundraising and capitaling, uh, capitalizing and the, you know, the financials. And it's, it's really just, it, it, it was so fulfilling to me. And just to be able to see a, a project from its start to its finish was, was uh, something I decided I wanted to do more of. Well, that's fantastic. You know, there's such a, a romanticized image of the struggling actor or actress, but <laughs> that's gotta be challenging you know it's just making ends meet and the ups and downs of auditions and you know often serendipity or a moment or an accident you know that you couldn't possibly have planned for will create the kind of change and opportunity that you know happened for you it doesn't happen for everyone yeah and um you know i feel very fortunate to still be working in the field that i you know always wanted to work in and I just if you had told me when I was a teenager that I would love sitting down with financials and doing QuickBooks and uh you know uh figuring out budgets I would have said you were nuts but I do I love it I love the nitty-gritty of it and uh yeah I mean with the acting thing I do I miss it sometimes but I I just came to the realization that I felt like I was going to be much more useful and much more fulfilled being on the other side of the table than, you know, auditioning every day to be, you know, play a tree in the next Disney Broadway show. <laughs> right, you know? And right. I, I don't mean to belittle the people who are doing that because it is hard and it takes a lot of craft and a lot of 
uh, a lot of maintenance and, and, uh, you know, strategy, but it, it just, just wasn't my path anymore. Right. So serving as managing director of the New York music festival. And then I know you moved on and were general manager for theater works USA, you know, that's a lot of responsibility. And I think most people don't understand the number of moving parts that are underneath a hood in an engine like that. Yeah, I mean, if you think of a producer of a show, if you think of a lead producer as the CEO of a company, the general manager is sort of like the CFO and a chief of operations. So they're overseeing anything financial. They're working with the legal teams to, um, uh, you know, to get contracts going with uh, with creative teams, directors, choreographers. Um, they're, you know, uh finding venues, signing those, those types of agreements. They're involved with things like insurance, payroll, um, unions is a big one. A lot of working with unions. Uh, and just, yeah, and, and I mean, certainly a GM has generally, they're, they're going to have a staff that, that is helping them execute all those day-to-day -day things, but, but they are sort of the keeper of all of those different departments. And it's, um, you know, and working in the nonprofit world uh, where you don't necessarily have as many resources, uh, it, you know, it makes it extra challenging. It's, it's not a, uh, it's not a job for someone who, you know, <laughs> wants to, work from nine to five and have a good work-life balance. I right. will say that, you right. know, it's, right. it, it was, and it was so fulfilling when I was doing it. But it's all working with people who are passionate. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's the key is, you know, it would be a complete slog if it wasn't for, you know, the, the community and the collaboration. And again, that feeling of seeing something from start to finish. Fantastic. So, uh, my wife and I go to a lot of theater and once in a while we'll go to something that's uh, regional and smaller. We saw a wonderful production a couple summers ago at the Colonial Theater in Pittsfield. It was a show about uh, Alan Freed, the legendary DJ who got, you know, scandalized by Paola, but was really a semin seminal figure in American radio and in particular crossover acts. The first time black artists appeared on what was considered to be white radio. Uh, and it was a pretty good cast. A friend of ours, Dave Keyes, was the musical director. George Went was in the show. But there's something different about that kind of theater where, you know, sometimes things are more apt to go wrong. You know, at a certain point, a set, a, something went wrong with a set piece. When you're managing uh, theater at that level, sort of just that cut below, you know, Broadway, off-Broadway, things often go wrong. I would imagine, I would imagine somewhere in your tenure between the festival and theater works that there were some things that went wrong. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, oh gosh. I mean, I can think of uh, theaters in the, uh, at the height of summer that, that uh, had broken air conditioning and dealing with that both on behalf of the actors and the crew and, you know, the union implications of that. And, you know, and these, these things happen, air conditioning breaks. And yeah, I mean, things like, uh, you know, cast members falling ill and, and one of the creative team members having to step in, um, you know, uh, 
having people drop out and immediately having to replace cast members, you know, all these kind of things happen. Um, yeah, problematic set pieces. Oh, I could go on for, for hours. <laughs> right. But an awful lot goes right, too, of course. Yes. Oh, yeah, exactly. So somewhere along the line, you make a transition and move to Sony and to the world of music publishing. Music publishing remains the really only healthy part of what we would call the traditional music business, the big record labels, the business of recorded music. Uh, certainly distribution has changed as, uh, you know, Steve Jobs basically changed the whole game uh, many, many years ago when the labels had a chance to develop their own unified digital format and just didn't really believe in it. Very famously, I think it was Tommy Mottola who was at Sony, ironically, very famously did not believe in digital, that it would, that it would just be a passing fad. He might, he might have missed that one. And, and creating an opening, Steve Jobs fills that opening initially with the iPod uh, going, way, going way back, and the rest is history. But music publishing has remained a very good business. Talk about what it's like to be part of one of the legendary iconic shops. I know we talked about uh, Marty Bandier, who had a legendary run at Sony, an icon uh, in music publishing and music in general. But talk about the music publishing world and why do you think that has continued to really perform in a very, very real and tangible way? We're going to talk about Mandela, but let's talk about you know the music publishing genre in general and, and Sony, which has a unique place in that world. Well, for anybody listening who doesn't know sort of what music publishing is, it, it basically, we represent songwriters. That's the essence of it. And that can take many different forms. Sometimes an artist or a songwriter might have their own music publishing company, but they go through us to administer it and do sort of the day-to-day -day operations of it. Sometimes we will buy out a catalog. But, you know, it, it basically, I mean, I think the reason it survives is there are always songwriters and there's always people making music and it's, it has changed drastically, even though some of the language is still very, very antiquated. I mean, even the term publishing, it's called publishing because at the time when this started of somebody representing songwriters, literally print publishing was the only form of that because there was no, you know, there was no radio yet, certainly no recordings or records or anything like that. And even the term mechanicals, which refers to basically album sales or singles, and now it takes the form of downloads, digital. It's called mechanicals because it was born out of the player piano and music boxes. That's why it's called mechanical. So, I mean, you have this industry that has changed drastically, but the intent behind it, which is to foster creativity and get work out there to the public is a, it's a constant. I didn't know the language was so uh, antiquated. That Those are great stories. Let's talk about a world that you do know so well, and that's the theatrical world and that intersection of music, what we'll call publishing, now knowing that the nomenclature is antiquated, and a project like a Mandela. Let's talk about that and what your day-to-day -day is like. Give us sort of the big picture, Liz, of, of what your world is like. Sure, sure. So I, you know, it's funny when I got 
my job, when I was interviewing for my job, that was the first time I even learned that this was a job that existed. <laughs> Basically, so at Sony, you have what's called synchronization, which is where Sony is licensing songs out to producers of commercials or films or, you know, feature the songs there. What I deal with is called grand rights, which is basically anything live stage, excluding like concerts and tour artists touring. That's, that's a separate world. But what that means is I work on any Broadway shows that feature pre-existing music shows like Moulin Rouge, Michael Jackson, also shows that are original musicals written by our songwriters like Mandela and like The Outsiders, which is premiering on Broadway this spring. I also work with a lot of dance companies who are using our music. Cruise ships are a big part of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. A lot of cruise ship shows, plays that might feature music. You know, there was a play on Broadway recently called Slave Play that featured a Rihanna song very prominently. At one point they're singing the song, at one point it's playing in the background, and actually in certain scenes, lyrics from that song are emblazoned on the back of the set. Like those were all aspects of that license. So it's a lot, you know, because I'm doing everything from Broadway and Cirque du Soleil to small community theater productions who might want to use some of our songs. It's a volume game for sure. It is a matter of managing the inbox. You know, I have a tracking spreadsheet that you know, where I know the status of every single deal that's in process that <laughs> I save in three different places at the end of each day, because if I ever lost it, I would be pretty screwed. But yeah, so basically what happens is um, a producer comes to me, they say, uh, let's say a producer is putting on a play and they want to use the song, I Will Always Love You. So they come to me, we represent Dolly Parton, the the songwriter of, of the song. So I would get details about how it's being used in the show, like what's happening in the scene, you know? So if they, if they say, oh, somebody breaks into song in the middle of the scene, they have to go through me. I clear it with Dolly's people, make sure it's okay. We discuss the terms, we license the song, they pay Sony, Sony pays Dolly. And, you know, the other aspect of that is if there's a recording being played. So rather than somebody breaking into song, if they, they say a character's listening to the radio when a song comes on, they still have to go through us so that we're licensing for Dolly, but then they also have to go to the record label because now you're exploiting not only a song, but a recording, a performance of that song. So, so you know, it's a matter of, of getting them set up with everything that they need. And it's it can be complicated because I joke that I spend half my day explaining to theater people how the music industry works because it is, it is not intuitive, especially music publishing. And I spend the other half of my day explaining to music people how the theater industry works. And it's funny because I used to be in the former. I was sort of learning about the music industry as I was starting to tackle this job because I knew very little about it. It was sort of a steep learning curve, but it's been an amazing experience to sort of have a, a toe in both of those worlds and be able to be part of both of those uh, industries. Yeah, it's an amazing evolution. And, you know, you really do have that unique skill set to be able to speak both languages. Yeah, it's um, it, it took a while before I was speaking the music language and I'm still learning every day, still constantly reading books about it and discovering new aspects, of not only the publishing industry, but the, you know, the music industry in general. Sounds to me like you're getting there. So let's talk about Mandela. When did the project first emerge on your radar? 
after I started, because the pieces were already in motion, the license had actually already been done, but I was introduced to Greg and Sean because they were planning a concert version of it. This is, I started at Sony in September of 2019. And I, uh, this, so this would have been December of 2019, you know, very interesting time. We didn't, we didn't know it was interesting at the time, but some of the last shows we saw for a while. So they were doing a, uh, a concert version of it and we met and they were talking about the uh, where they were in the development process and hiring directors. And from there, I've seen all that production pre-pandemic. And then I went out to London last year and saw it at the, the Young Vic. And it's it's really fascinating to see how much it's grown. And they've, they've just created so many other layers, like in terms of the, the more people that they bring on, the more it sort of takes shape and enhances it. So it was really exciting to be part of this uh, this cast recording release a few weeks ago. And that's now out there for all all of your listeners. You should definitely, definitely hunt it down. It's on all major apps and, you know, downloadable and all that. So we're really excited about the next steps. So the majority of my work has really been just being supportive and being another set of eyes and ears as they're, they're continuing to develop this thing. Great. Well, certainly a key part of the creative team. You touched on something that's really interesting, the evolution of a show from the early versions, those workshop versions, you know, to those initial productions, often, you know, almost two completely different shows where something ends up relative to where it began. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's theater. Um, it's, it takes a long time. It takes a long time. Not only the logistics of it, I mean, sometimes just the trying to get the show into a nonprofit season, you know, can take a couple of years. And, you know, certainly like trying to land a Broadway theater and, and being caught in that pipeline. I mean, that's that can be years as well. And it's it's a timing game. It's a waiting game. But also, you know, the good news about that is it really gives you a chance to continue to to fine tune it and understand. I mean, every, every stage that they've gone through, and this is true of Mandela and almost any show, every stage that it, it's gone through, they've learned something. And, oh, you know, we need to bring a consultant in to help us address that, you know, you know, what could be perceived as that hole in the plot, or we need to bring in somebody who, you know, knows a little bit more about, um, you know, about the Swahili and, and you know, the, the sort of understands that, um, you know, that, th- that side of things. And, and uh, it's, it, so it's cool. It's cool. It's sort of like a production is a lot like you think of it as like a snowball rolling downhill. It really starts with a couple people and an idea, and then it just continues to pick up more and more people. And, you know, it's funny. I, I get people reaching out to me saying, you know, I want to write, or I'm writing a Broadway show. And this isn't just at Sony. I've, I've heard this, you know, uh, in elsewhere in my career, they say, oh, I'm writing a Broadway show. And it's a Broadway show doesn't become a Broadway show just with the writers. It is a matter of bringing on the right people. You know, it is, it, it, it takes a village. It takes a village to make a Broadway show or even an off-Broadway show for that matter. It is not, it, it's not like a novel where you know there's a creator and then it just goes out into the world it, it you need to 
you know, you, you need to make those connections. You need to get feedback from people who have gone before you and, and know, you know, the best approach. And, you know, certainly a lot of it is, is choosing those people and knowing who to listen to and not listen to. And when, you know, to, to, to kind of follow your gut or, you know, or when to say, okay, you know, this is, this is something I need to sort of put my ego aside and, you know, uh, and, and trust my team. Well, I think it's almost like any other enterprise where the caliber of the team really matters. And uh, I was lucky enough, geez, it's 25 years ago now, Liz, was part of the team that brought always Patsy Klein to Off-Broadway here I in New York. I did not know that. And Very it was cool. at the old Variety Arts Theater, which is gone now. It was on between 13th and 14th. I think it was on 3rd Ave. And we did it with Opryland Theatricals out of Nashville. And the opening night was uh, one of the great nights of our lives. We had all the Nashville royalty, the Mandrell sisters, and it was a big deal. And it ran for a year. And it was a real privilege to have put you know, that deal together to bring always Patsy Cline to New York. I did it with my old pal, Ken Sunshine, who I'm still very close with, and uh, a wonderful group out of Nashville. The president at that time of Gaylord, which is the parent company of the Grand Ole Opry and Opryland Theatricals, uh, was a guy named Dick Evans, who used to be president and CEO of Radio City and then Madison Square Garden. So he uh, was great to me when I was a kid running the sports commission for New York when I was 23. And he, he used to call me governor, which I really liked when I was like 23 years <laughs> old. And it was very uh, good to me. And he ended up in Nashville and that's how the whole thing sort of started. But it was a great joy to see from the inside how something like that comes together and to be part of the extended family of people engaged in bringing Mandela the musical to Broadway is a similar privilege. And I'm going to see the uh, Greg and Sean Friday, you know, I'm constantly, um, you know, trying to help them move forward any and every way we can. And uh, it's a great joy. And I love Nandy and Lavoya. We were there on opening night at the Young Vic. I think it was December 5th. Oh, I was too. Uh, so <laughs> there you go. Didn't, didn't meet, but I was there. Yeah. December 5th of, uh, I think it was of 2022 and uh ran sold out for 11 weeks uh, as planned uh and uh knockwood 24 25 will be at another red carpet another opening in new york on Bro on broadway liz let's let's set that as a as a shared goal absolutely i yeah i mean it's it it certainly deserves to be there and i have no doubt that it will be um i was listening to the recording again the other day and it's just stunning just yeah. stunning it really is. It really is. Well, Liz, thanks so much for doing this. It was great to uh, get a chance to talk to you, talk about Mandela, talk about my mom, Phyllis's favorite, Patsy Klein. That got to come up and uh, inadvertently, as always, on Great Minds. And uh, we will look forward uh, to another great season, season five ahead. This will conclude season four of Great Minds. And I couldn't think of a better person or a better topic than you, Liz, and the chance to talk about Mandela the musical. I'm so thrilled. I'm so honored. Happy 300. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, the people have spoken. Yeah, we're on, we're on.